to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Welcome to 2019. I know you all have big goals this year and not a lot of time, money, and staff to get it all done. Join me on today's podcast with Sarah Oliveri, owner and digital strategist of Pivot Ground, as we discuss some tactics to accomplish more with less and increase your capacity to get all of your important work done. Check out more about Sarah and her firm in the show notes. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. Finally, please drop me a line if there are any topics or guests that you'd be interested in. Wong at gmail.com. Enjoy! All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast here today. We're so excited to have you. Oh, my pleasure, Rhea. It's really um, an honor to be here, and I'm excited to be one of your early guests. I think you're going to have uh, great success with your podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, hopefully. I mean, we're just starting out, but um, before we jump too far into that, tell me a little bit about yourself and your expertise. Sure. My name is Sarah Olivieri, and I uh, am owner of Pivot Ground. We are a nonprofit uh, consulting agency, and um, we do business operations consulting, and then we do a lot of marketing and digital strategy support uh, for nonprofits. And we have our own um, method that helps nonprofits called the impact method. It's how we organize uh, the structures and processes so we can make really fast and efficient progress on achieving our goals. That's awesome. And so did you come from a background in nonprofit yourself? Yeah, I started out Working in nonprofits, my mother had run a small private school uh, that I had gone to, and she had really just, there was no one else to do it, and she just took it up. And so after college, I went I went to Japan to teach English, and I came back, and I got involved with a local nonprofit that was a school for kids on the autism spectrum. Um, and of course, like any newish nonprofit, there were lots of needs, and because I had this great role model in my mother, I was like, oh, like your bookkeeping isn't good, I can probably figure that out because we need to know where the money's coming Mm -hmm. from. I can do my job. So I picked up different things and I quickly found myself in like a nonprofit leadership role because I could both talk to people and like look at the finances. So that put me like way ahead of the game. And then so one thing led to another. I got involved with starting my own nonprofit. Then I got my master's degree in humanistic multicultural education and published a book about combining the therapeutic things that they usually pull kids with special needs out of the classroom for into lesson plans. So one thing led to another until the economy crashed. Uh, and all along on the side, just because I like learning things, I had started building websites for people, you know, back in like 2003, I think I built my first one. So I was pretty good at it. And I leaned on that during the economic downturn. And that became my full-time gig after a while is building websites and um, doing more and more marketing work for those clients. And I realized that my my favorite clients, my best clients were all the, the nonprofits who I worked with because I was able to help them in ways that no other web person could. And so I started really leaning in and helping nonprofits with this marketing piece. But as I started working with bigger organizations, I realized that it wasn't really worth for them to spend money on bringing in especially some of the work that we do is really on helping them deliver their mission directly, not just on fundraising. But that energy wasn't wasn't worth it. The money wasn't worth it if they weren't, like, they didn't have the organizational capacity mm. to manage of that. 
And so I, one client in particular actually asked me if I would come and help reorganize their staff and train them in some ways that uh, I knew how to work in that were much more efficient. And I immediately was like, this is my zone. This is where, like, that would be fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> that. And, you know, if you want to pay me, that's like an extra bonus. <laughs> but I, so then at that point, I really shifted to doing a lot more business consulting, and I created the impact method because I didn't want my consulting to be just about my ideas and my experience, but I really wanted to create a repeatable process by which the clients, the nonprofits they worked with could have independence and continue to generate their own good ideas and move themselves forward independent of me. So, so that's you landed. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're sort of at my seat, but because I love nonprofits, as you know. I also love uh, I love productivity, and I think we initially connected because we are both fans of Marie Kondo. Post my podcast, I think it was like podcast number four, about the life-changing magic of tidying up your nonprofit. So tell me a little bit about this impact method. What's involved with it? Sure. So I've taken a lot of, you know, best practices from other methodologies, but I sat down I started in my own business, which is for-profit, using a business framework called the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And I realized that structuring your business around a clear framework that helps you really know what goals you're working on, focus your team, have better meetings, was what made the biggest difference in my business out of anything. But the problem with that framework and with any other framework I, I you know, started searching for was that it wasn't... It didn't have an organization's mission at the core. And it didn't know how to take into account that, like, you know, measuring efficiency. So, so like, how do you measure efficiency in a nonprofit? How do you measure, like, impact on your mission? And, and how does efficiency towards your mission? Like, I'm just asking my, that question. What does return on investment mean for a nonprofit? And, and really it came down to, in for-profits, we use profit margins. Like, how much money is, comes out at the end of the day? And, versus how much you put in, and we can use that as a great measurement of efficiency. But in a nonprofit, that is not a good measurement of efficiency. We might have gone into the red, but we might have, like, you know, saved, you know, 10,000 lives. That's our goal there, is how much movement we're making towards our mission. So I wanted to create a framework that was centered around the mission and that was focused on efficiency towards mission delivery over efficiency towards you know, monetary outcome at the end of the day. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of the the good to great for social sectors, and I think yeah. that's one of the challenges of how do you really measure value creation in a social sector context? Because yeah, to your point, obviously you can't measure through profits and ROI in the same way. Right, you can't. And so I also wanted to, in uh, you know, some of the magic that I put in is I needed. We made the strategies visual. Too many nonprofits were writing long documents and putting them in drawers. And nonprofits need to be able to share their overall strategy with their team, with their donors, with potential foundation supporters or major donors. And I wanted to create the strategy in a way that someone could look at it, you know, that I could, like, share my my overall business strategy with you in, like, 10 minutes, and you would be like, oh, yeah, not only is this, are these great goals and really important for the world, but I see exactly how you're going to achieve them. So, yes, I want to support you in this. Um, or as a team member, like, I know exactly what my role is, and I know that we're all working on a goal that has to do directly with achieving our mission. 
So that visual layout was really important to me in building the impact method. So I don't mean to pretend this up, but would it be possible for you to provide us with a sample that I can link to in the show notes so the folks listening get an idea of what you mean by a visual strategic representation? Sure. You know what I'll do is I've actually just made a sample because we've been so busy building them for clients. We didn't have time to make up our own nonprofit. Um, but what I can do, part of the best way, is I can make a short video that I can share with you um, in the show notes as a video walkthrough. That's great. So we're going to air this at the beginning of 2019, and this is a great time for folks to think about planning for the year ahead. What are five things that folks can think about as far as making themselves more productive in their nonprofit. Yeah, so I have come up with five things that people can do that don't include really spending any money because a lot of people are like, you know, all we need is money. We just need more money and our capacity issues will be solved. And I'd like to say not so fast, first of all. Just because you have more money does not mean you will have more capacity. And second of all, whenever I go into a new nonprofit, I usually am like, oh, my God, there's so much, like, there's so much juice here. There's so much good stuff here. There's that we can just unpack capacity because of the passion that people have. People are drawn, amazing people are drawn to work with nonprofits, but they just need some tweaking to unlock all this unpacked capacity. I love what you're saying. Before you jump in, it actually reminds me when I was, First starting my nonprofit, I had this vision of, you know, one day when we have more money and we have more people, everything will be easier. And the truth is it never was. It was just more money, more problems. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it just grows. Yeah. So you really have to hit some core ways of operating yeah. if you want to get capacity and have capacity and grow capacity. So number one, um, 2019, we are totally in the digital age and then some. So mm-hmm. number one is automate. If you're thinking, oh, we need to hire somebody because our staff is overwhelmed, step back and start really getting cool with automation. Take a moment, look at your job, your team's job. What are the things that you're doing over and over again? Anything that you repeat is worth looking at as a candidate for automation. So. First, you need to, like, document a process usually before you can automate it. Make sure that you have a clear, consistent process, which you probably do if you've been doing it over and over again, but chances are you never wrote it down. So take a moment to write it down or, you know, screencast what you're doing and get yourself started with automation. Now, automation can get super complicated, but start with something easy if this is your like automation. I don't know where to begin. Yeah. Um, it sounds scary and particularly for folks who are not that comfortable with technology, I think that can be a little daunting. So what are some examples of automation that would be easy to do? So I would start with a Zapier account. That's Z-A-P-I-E-R. You can put a link in the show notes. I get no money for recommending them. But they're one of the first and main um, tools that help you both connect cloud-based web tools, but there are also mm-hmm. some automations just from one tool and then out, like it can um, send an email or add something to your calendar or, or connect one thing with something with a spreadsheet. And Zapier has its basic level is free, but nonprofits can get their pro account for free as well if they just add the Zapier logo to their website somewhere. So Zapier on the basic level, they've got lots of tutorials on how to use it, but get you know, get two things connected on Zapier or get a reminder so that, like, you know, if you get a certain kind of email, it triggers a reminder to somebody else. 
you know, it's hard to give people a concrete example because there's so many options. But I think learn how to use Zapier is a fantastic start for learning about automation. Perfect. That's a great, that's a great tip. What's another tip that we can use? I think nothing that doesn't have a process yet can be automated. Um, but one area where I see it's really common is um, scheduling with people or following up with people. Oh, my gosh, Sarah, this is such a pain point. <laughs> Everyone I know since a million years is trying to schedule meetings and then having the meeting. Right. So, you know, get yourself a scheduling meeting tool. Um, Calendly is popular. Uh, we use Acuity Scheduling, which doesn't have a free option, but it's a little more powerful. And these things can help you get scheduled. If you're trying to schedule a group, Doodle Poll, probably people know about that. But if you don't, look up Doodle Poll. But using a calendar tool, then when you want to meet with somebody, you send them a link to your scheduling page, which is synced right up to your calendar. And they all work with, like, iCal and Google Calendar. And if there's still a Microsoft calendar out there, it works with that. I think Outlook. <laughs> um, right. So, and then you say, let's meet. Here's a link to my calendar. Pick something that works for you. So you don't have to go back and forth. It's like, is this good for you? No. Is that good for you? No. It's not. Have a good date? No. And then you're holding it. So all that mess is gone. That can really help. And then another thing you can do, most of those tools will now automatically, once someone has scheduled through them, remind that person that the meeting is coming up, that they actually show up. Um, right. So there's like, you know, get some, some assistance in scheduling and then that reminder there. Great. So those are two. So we've automation, we have scheduling. What else would you recommend? Yeah. So I would, I kind of count scheduling in the automation, but it's kind of sliding into my second thing about getting more capacity, which is delegate. You know, there's a lot. You've probably heard this before. You could read a whole book on delegation. This is a great example like that calendar link. Instead of emailing people like potential dates, you're delegating it to a tool. So, but delegating to another human being is really helpful. If you're the kind of person who, like, needs to be involved with everything, step back and think about, like, what is the cost to my organization? If you're, if you're in a leadership role and you're kind of have your hands in everything and you're not ready to let go, ask yourself, what is the cost to my organization? Because I'm not able to focus on my most important things because I'm kind of have my hand in every pot. So I really encourage people to delegate whatever is not their superpower or super strength. Yeah, that's such an interesting because I find that that's the case particularly with executive directors and in particular with founding executive directors and I, I'm guilty of charge. I know this tendency in myself very well. But the other point that I would say and I've heard this from a lot of folks too is I am not against delegating. I just don't have anyone to delegate to. What would you respond to that? Yeah, I think when it comes to that, um, that actually brings me right into my third thing, is stop doing something. Because if you don't even have time to delegate, because you're what you're doing is not, like you haven't written down instructions or you have to train something, that is a trap right there. And you're going to have to be, you know, you're going to have to write down a strategy or write down the list of things you do and be brutal in the way you prioritize. Because if you don't get out of that position, you are on a downward slope already. It might not feel like it. You might feel like you're treading water, but you're not. You are already drowning. So 
<laughs> you got to be really serious and say, what can I stop doing or what can I at least put on hold so that I can get a few things off my plate? And really think about, like, what is that thing that if I got it off my plate would really free up my time? And then just get that off your plate. Make that your number one priority to get it off your plate so you have a little bit of room for growth. Because if you're not growing, even though you don't have to become a big nonprofit, that's not what I mean by growth, but, like, moving forward. If, you, if you're if you not moving forward, then you're probably drowning. Yeah, I take that to heart. I think a lot of Dr. Marshall Goldsmith is about making a list of what to stop doing, not what to start doing, because most nonprofits, folks I know, are doing far too much. And it reminds me, a couple years ago, my New Year's resolution was, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And it was really hard to stick to, but it was probably my most productive year. That is a great example. I love that. I like to tell people, I spend a lot of time being like, you're not going to do this anymore, you're not going to do that, and I try to support them, and I say, here is a fireproof garbage can, and you can take, you think that fire that's burning is going to, like, burn the house down, but if you really think about it, a lot of fires are just, like, the result of something else not working, and you can just ignore it and let it burn and know that you're going to hit the critical core issue behind it, and you don't actually have to put a Band-Aid on it right now, and that's a great way to stop doing something, especially if people have issues kind of coming up all of a sudden. Well, and I feel like it brings up another point, too, because sometimes I think that being busy is just a form of procrastination. So I would often be busy, quote-unquote, doing stuff that I knew how to do in order to avoid doing the stuff I either didn't know how to do or didn't really want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's that great, I think it's called the Eisenhower Matrix of what's urgent, what's important, what's not important, and what's not urgent. And everything that's not important and not urgent, you're supposed to, like, not do or completely delegate. But you really have to – the leadership part is about balancing that, what's urgent and important, and we end up thinking that everything's urgent and important. So when I tend to prioritize, I like to think of critical, important, normal – low. And just, you know, sometimes the way we talk really impacts the way we think about things. So usually when we phrase it that way, people go critical versus important. So if you've got a bunch of important, if everything's important, divide up which things are important and which things are critical and hit those critical things and let the important things slide until those critical things are taken care of. I think you also point to another important thing that you didn't say explicitly, but I think is implied is that you actually have to carve out the time to be able to sit and think about something because I think when you're doing, doing, doing and you don't have to take the time to reflect or be intentional about how to spend your time, you end up just running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, like you said before, especially for people who are founders or who've had to, like, save an organization from almost going out, um, you get into – that work mode and you're working in your nonprofit instead of on your nonprofit. But if you're the leader, if you're at the top there, you really have to be working on your nonprofit. And if you're a board member listening, think about, you know, the top leadership of your nonprofit. Uh, do they have enough resources or can you support them by telling them, don't worry about those issues. Take a moment, think about what needs to be done, prioritize, get that brain time in um, to make sure that you're hitting the core issues. Can I ask you a question that's not really related to this, but I've been thinking a lot about the culture of nonprofits in general and this 
almost this tendency to always be overly booked, overly busy, and if they're not, somehow you feel like they're not a good executive director, you're not doing your job. Do you think that that is a symptom of the culture of nonprofits? I think it is. I think it's, I think that the real core issue is that for a long time, nobody really sat down and said, how do we run nonprofits in a way that was efficient? Efficiency is like not a word that's in nonprofits vocabulary. And I think it's because efficiency is usually thought about when it comes to money and time and not about delivering mission. But of course, it absolutely has to do with delivering your mission. And so I think like that's like the deep-rooted problem. And so we're like, just do, do, do. I just need to like do as much as I can. But it really wreaks havoc. Yeah, I think people feel you know, they feel guilty if they're not overworked. They feel guilty if they're making above a certain amount of money. They feel guilty if they're taking time off, if they go home in the evening and aren't continuing to check their email. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't. I think I was actually on nonprofit radio the other day. We were talking about some of this this kind of issue. And I was thinking how, you know, like, not people in nonprofits, they have what they need to solve this problem in them right now. But they believe that their mission is worthy of all of their resources. But where the, the gap is, is they don't believe that they themselves and their organization is worthy of all of the resources to run well or to do their jobs really well. And so I think you just have to have a moment of bravery. I don't know how else to, to tell people to get over it, but that you will not deliver your mission as well as you possibly could if you don't invest resources in, in yourself, your, your, you know, personally, your well-being and your organization's well-being, um, because that really becomes the spine, the backbone of delivering your mission. That's so true. I mean, it actually is a really nice tie-in to my episode 13 with Jennifer McCrea about scarcity and abundance mindset. And the fact that we really do have a scarcity mindset, both in terms of money, time, and resources in the nonprofit sector. And I think until we make that mental and emotional shift, we're always going to feel like we're behind the eight ball. Yeah, and it is, it's absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial. And, you know, I hear, now we're going way off track, you know, the fear, the that scarcity mindset, I'm a huge fan of transparency. And in Nonprofits, more than for-profit businesses, they're afraid to share certain information. They're afraid that they're, that they're, they have less money than people think and that will have a bad effect or that they have more money than people think and that will have a bad impact or they're afraid to be open about their finances or their needs. Mm. But people will, if you are authentic about your needs, being vulnerable is one of the greatest strengths and assets you can give to your organization because people do want to help you and they won't, you won't know what's out there if you don't put your issues out there and say, we'd like to solve these issues. We're moving forward. Join us. Well, Sarah, we're going to have to have you on it another time because I feel like that's a whole other podcast in and of itself, this issue of leadership and vulnerability and asking people to partner with you in order to achieve a great mission. So let's make a date to, to have that. All right. Um, but, but I think you were up to Advice number four. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about number four. So this is probably my favorite one and where I do a lot of work with people. It's identify your team members' superpowers and then put them into uh, positions where they are primarily working 
in their superpowers. So your superpowers are the things that you're great at and that you love doing. And so that when you do those things, you're actually energized when you're doing them. So there's plenty of things that our leaders come great at or good at, but they're not energized when they do them. So you really want to look for that thing that when you do it, you just get hyped up and you're like, more. the more you do it, the more energy you have. So that's kind of step one. And then the step two of this piece is um, I use a tool called the Nonprofit Accountability Chart. You can get uh, a template on our website, pivotground.com. You can include a link in the show notes. And you, this is a way of instead of looking at your organization and, like, who's in charge of who and what people's jobs are, we really start to break down a nonprofit by what are the core functions that make that organization work. It's not wildly different between each nonprofit because they're all businesses with the same functions, but you can kind of reorganize them based on exactly how your nonprofit works and how big it is. And once you've done that, then you take the superpowers and you make sure that they are accountable for those the functions of your organization that fit their superpowers. And once you've done that, once everyone on your team is doing a job that uses their superpowers and they have more and more energy, you will gain an incredible amount of efficiency. Um, and the quality of your work will go up. And that's a way that you can reorganize your team. Oftentimes, you'll probably, you'll probably see at least a 10, if not 50% bump in what you can get out of your team as it stands now without spending any more money. I love that. So you're really tapping into people's natural energies and talents and interests. Yes, absolutely. I, I had was doing this work um, with a nonprofit recently, and they had someone there who had wanted to convert basically her job and her department into something else. But she was afraid that it wouldn't be well-received, and she never had the opportunity to say, I'd like to do things, like, actually really differently and, like, get rid of, like, my physical space at the nonprofit and replace it with something else. And she actually wanted to turn a library into a computer center. And meanwhile, everybody else was thinking um, that, you know, that this library piece wasn't really that helpful, but there was no room for her to kind of lean into her superpower because it was her, quote, job. Her her job was the library. And as soon as we started looking at what are the functions of, of the organization and how can we shift people, she was like, this is what I've been wanting to do. And it was like an easy alignment, and it gave, you know, it was just swapping of resources, really. There was no additional money to be spent, and it was an incredible boost for the organization. I love that, and I love this idea of alignment and misalignment. I think that's so much more productive to think about than uh, kind of this blame um, this brain game that we can sometimes play. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this works, you know, for, especially for smaller nonprofits or nonprofits saying, like, we really have no money, like, we're actually, you know, worried that we might have to reduce our expenses. Do this process with your whole team. You know, get them to say, what are the pieces that make our, you know, forget about our jobs for the moment. What are the pieces that make our nonprofit run? And then allow your team to work together to identify, like, who's going to really own each of these seats? And one person can own multiple seats, um, but only one person can really own any one seat. Otherwise, you kind of get accountability crossover, and then it's very hard to share accountability. It becomes no accountability. And once people own those seats and the whole team knows about it, all those jobs are they were doing, they can reorganize. They can pass back and forth to each other. Say, I was doing this, but now that doesn't really fit, and I know it fits for you, and I'm going to give you this task. And 
So you don't need, as a leader, to, like, do all the work of reorganizing the task. Your team now can kind of self-reorganize. I love that. And we could probably have another podcast about teal organizations and reimagining organizations, but it's a whole other topic. So what's the last tip that you have for us as we go into 2019? You know, I think 2019, I'd love for everybody to be thinking about this this topic as a whole, capacity. What is your nonprofit capacity? And I really say that in order for nonprofits to really thrive and be successful and, and get out of the chaos and overwhelm, which I'm sure you want in 2019, is you have to have a strong strategy and you have to have enough capacity to move the next step forward. And your, your strategy has to be aligned with that capacity. So whatever it takes to make sure that you have the capacity to move one increment forward, whether you're growing or you're becoming just better at what you do or you need to finally build that fundraising department or you need to finally launch a new program or you need to finally measure your impact if you've never really done that. I want you to really look at your capacity and if you don't have room to grow in whatever your next step forward is, use these five tips to make that growth happen, to give yourself that capacity. I love that. Well, you know, I'm hoping everybody listening will take this to heart and will have the most productive, healthy, healthiest year that they can. And I really thank you for being on the show, Sarah. Thank you so much, Rhea. I appreciate it. And have a great 2019. We'll definitely have you back to talk about all the other stuff. Sounds good. You too. Happy holidays, everybody. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.